Hello, and welcome to Plant Powered Buddhist Podcast, where we are learning to turn our eating habits into a spiritual practice. I'm Sensei. I want to welcome you from wherever you're listening in the world. I also want to say a heartfelt thank you to all of my followers, my supporters, my clients, and my students. Without your support, I simply couldn't do what I do. I'm excited about today's episode, so with no further ado, let us begin. And welcome back. Today we are going to journey together, I think perhaps for the first time in this particular way. I'm sure at some point in a previous episode of my podcast, I've made some mention of contemplative practices. Today I actually want to take you through a contemplative practice that has to do with mind mastery and food. And the purpose of doing this is is to give you a concrete example of what real contemplative work feels like and looks like. Now, obviously, we cannot complete, shall we say, this exercise in one short sitting. But I give you the groundwork so that you can continue this particular contemplation or apply the formula to other areas of your life. Oftentimes when I speak of mind mastery, people wonder if this has something to do with intellect, intellectual prowess. And on some level, the answer is yes, but not in the way in which you may think. That is, it does require the ability to sustain thought, And for that, that certainly requires intellectual prowess, energy. But it does not require that you have an encyclopedic knowledge of history and the world and science of any particular thing. In fact, I would say it'd probably be best served for those who can just clear their minds and relieve themselves of attachments to certain ideas and concepts. I think the biggest barrier would not be the ability to exercise such intellectual prowess, but your attachments, your beliefs, your habits, tradition, culture, all these things have wound you up into a way of thinking and inquiring, if you inquire at all, that is highly inefficient and likely to lead to habitual behavior. Now, I can tell you that in my own life, that as between meditation and contemplative practices, that the contemplative exercises have brought forth the biggest and the most profound life-changing as in forever change, never the same again type of experiences. Whereas meditation for me serves more as a way to integrate the understanding gained from the contemplative work. 
Some people, for example, experience it differently. They have a more profound experience in meditation. And I've certainly had amazing experiences in meditation, but I use meditation as a tool and I use contemplative practices as tools, but in quite different ways. So that said, let me say just a little bit about contemplative practice, because oftentimes this is, as many things are, watered down to kind of fit the general populace. So when it comes to meditation or contemplative work, I find that people try to, yeah, for lack of a better phrasing, water it down so that the masses of people can have some access to it. Now that probably seems like, hey, that's a good idea because more people, you can do more good. I don't believe that. In fact, I think you can do greater harm, and I've often seen greater harm done as a result of taking this approach. So my pedagogical approach to contemplative work and meditation practice is for the purposes for which, at least in the Chan Buddhist tradition, were actually created and devised. So for myself, stress management, um, you know, the health benefits, so to speak, of doing either contemplative work or meditation, for me, are second or third tier goals. In fact, they're not goals at all. Now that I think about it, they're just a byproduct of deep engagement in the practice of meditation. But when those health benefits are your goal, you will necessarily be limited to the greater aspect, the deeper aspects of the meditation practice. And so it is with contemplative practices. People often think that spending a few moments to think about something while you're doing something else is an act of contemplating. No, that's not an act of contemplation. Not at all. When you engage in a contemplative exercise, there's nothing else going on. So there's this word in Sanskrit, dhyana. And from this word is where the word in Chinese came, the word chan. And this word, dhyana and chan, actually refers to a meditative state, meditative concentration. And there are different states, like samadhi, and so on and so forth. The point we want to get here is that when it comes to contemplative work and practices and exercises, there is a specific method. There is a way in which it ought to be done in order to reap the benefits for which they were created. Again, you can engage in contemplative practices for some other purpose, some other purpose that is not likely to lead to any behavioral change, but much in the way that people use meditation as a crutch, not a way to transform themselves, but just, I need the stress to go go away. I want the pain to go away. And it's temporary. So then they are frustrated because they have to keep going back to the well for more. And then if you don't have the discipline to keep sitting, 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 
then you start to say to yourself, meditation doesn't work, or alternatively, I need something else. Again, this will naturally happen with anything that is not used for its purpose. And to give you an idea of how dysfunctional I think the approaches are to using meditation specifically for these types of uh, byproduct ends or goals, and likewise with contemplative practices, it's like trying to use a fork to eat soup, a vegetable soup. Sure, you'll get some of the vegetables, but you're going to miss all of the broth, right? You may get a little drops here and there, but you're not getting the full flavor and taste of that soup when you try to eat it with a fork. So, that aside, let's engage here because we are looking at mind mastery and specifically in relation to the phenomenon called food. And the way I like to begin these is to begin with a question and a question that at first hearing doesn't sound very profound, meaning there's usually a knee-jerk response one built in a sense of selfhood that comes forth when I go through contemplative practices with people. And so as I go through this, identify yourself in these responses. Because as I talk you through this, I want you to kind of see the differences between contemplative practice and where other people might drop off and go a different direction. That is, they lose the scent. So I want you to be like, what do they call those dogs? The, the bloodhounds, right? Or one of those dogs who can sniff out, you know, drugs or bombs or, you know, maybe your pet knows when you have food in the room, right? You want to stay on the track because your thoughts will come in that will try to throw you off the scent of the truth. And so contemplative work is about being able to sustain, sustain your thought, to continue along a trajectory that is clear and unobstructed. And in order to do that, it does take time. That is time to allow whatever may arise in the practice and to consciously remove it. So this is one of the biggest distinctions that I draw between contemplative practice and meditation. As I instruct people in meditation, you want to have as little intentional mind activity. But when it comes to contemplative practice, I teach that you must engage the intellect like a light and a sword. You must shed light and cut through cleanly. One strike. Each thing that arises must be penetrated, seen through for what it really is. So let's 
take on our question, which today will be, why do you eat? Why do you eat food? <laughs> Again, this type of question, from the very get-go, if you are really tied into a sense of selfhood and ego, most people are going to respond, that's a ridiculous question, or, I mean, come on, it's obvious, right? There will be some response that is, in a sense, says this is not worthy of investigation, not worthy of even your time or effort to answer such a question, why do I eat? Is this you? Is this your response to questions that are asked of you or that arise in your mind or that is raised by others? Generally, everybody knows the answer to that. We don't need to. That's a waste of time. Okay. You've just dipped your toe into the world of contemplative practice because most people are going to cut and run at that point. You know, it'd be more important to go see, you know, what's happening online rather than to explore this question with any depth and understanding. So we continue. We push past the knee jerk responses that may come up. So whatever's come up for you in terms of, you know, that's ridiculous. Why ask that question? Everyone knows the answer. This is when you sit. You continue to sit. And for each time, some nonsensical response, knee-jerk response comes up, you ask the question again. So I ask the question, why do you eat food? My mind starts to say, come on, this is ridiculous. Don't do that. Why do you eat food? Here's the next layer. Okay, now it's like, well, you kind of cornered me a little bit. The ego says, okay, fine. You want a, a reason why? Uh, because I like it. I like food. Seems like a legitimate answer, right? I'm sure most people who eat food like it. I don't know if everyone likes it, but I think it's fair to go out on a limb and say that most people who eat food, whatever food it is that they eat, they like it. And so here's where we now can really start to shift into a deeper dive because some formulation of I like it, any variation of I like it, it's enjoyable, it's social. I've heard people say to me, well, since they, you know, we're, you know, it's part of being social and I like to socialize. And so therefore, and I'm like, okay, so really it is you, you like to socialize. So let's not conflate the two things here because they're two distinct phenomena, eating and socializing. Oh, hmm. You know, we can look at this as we look at, for example, uh, wine culture. Uh, some people say, oh, I really like to um, socialize. And so, you know, Let's get together, have wine, etc. And we can even flip that equation to say, do you like the socializing or is it the wine? 
And some people will, you know, think they're being clever and say, I like both. And it's like, okay, would you get together in this gathering with these same people without the wine? Right. Now you get deer looking into headlights. Well, that doesn't sound very fun. I mean, the you know, where's the ambiance? Do you see what's happening here in this contemplation so far? The murkiness, the conflation of ideas and phenomena, things that you take for granted as it relates to food, you really don't have a solid base, a solid foundation for your engagement with it. So let's, let's continue to push through this, sticking with this question, why I eat. Ah, it's ridiculous. Okay, well, I like it. Ah, I like to socialize. So we still, if you notice, having got to the question being asked, why do you eat food? You've only raised so far other phenomena related to food that you say that you like. And if we want to take a step closer in the like category, you can say, I like the taste of so-and-so. Okay, still, do you realize you're a valley away still with that response from an answer to this question, why do you eat food? I like the taste of it. This is my favorite dish. Now, if you think that that is synonymous, food and the taste, then that is to say that taste and food are the same thing. And why would we have different concepts for taste and food? Why would we have two different words, taste and food? Yes, this is splicing hairs, but this is what happens in contemplative work and practice is that we have to slow down. The mind wants to reflect all of the things that you want to regurgitate, all the habitual thinking. And all of that is flooding to the mind and the mind is able to take it all in and present it right back to you like a mirror. That's all it does. So it's not your mind playing tricks on you. This is you getting intimate with habitual thinking patterns that have been so ingrained that you believe that they're even your thoughts and that everyone else must think this way too. Not so. Not for those who have mastered the mind. So let's push more with this. Let's push past, I like it, I like the taste. Maybe with a little bit more thought, one might say, because I'm hungry.
Think about that, if that is true for you. I eat because I get hungry. If you reflect on this more, this response, well, everybody eats and I eat because I get hungry. Game over. No. Just starting. If you think about the food that you eat every day, how you eat it, how it's prepared, where you get it from, its source, all of these things that I've asked you to do in previous episodes. And when we come to this threshold question, why do I eat? You say, because I get hungry or I'm hungry. If that is in fact true for you, and it is for unfortunately many, many, many people, if this is true for you and you are suffering in any way, health issues, psychological issues, spiritual conflicts, I'm going to tell you to take a closer look at the response of because I'm hungry. And see if there's any correlation between your choices based upon this very seemingly logical and certainly biological response. And how is that serving you? How is that serving you? Where is the control, the consciousness in such a thing. Think about this deeply. This is where it starts to really warm up a little bit. And quite frankly, a lot of people don't even make it this far. But you're still here, I'm still here, and so we must press on. But each time we reach a bank, a shore, or a roadblock, like, I'm hungry, we have to stop and we have to see if that is really true for me, if this is the reason why I do X thing, and I look at what it is I choose to eat, is there any wonder why I would have the health, the energy levels that I have? And I believe if you sit with this long enough, you'll find that Making the optimal choice can't just be, I'm hungry. Even though the biology and your sense of self fully wants to validate that, what other reason could there be? And if you eat just because you're hungry, it might be part of the reason why you don't know what it is that you eat 
I mean, you can name it. You can say, hey, I'm eating a hamburger or I'm eating a salad or this, that, and the other. (laughs) But there's much more to knowing what it is that you eat than being able to name, to name it. That's the point. That's what contemplative practice forces us to do is to look past the, the ordinary. Look past the veil. Let's press forward a little bit more here. Now, one might say, I eat to stay alive. That's it. You ask me, why do I eat? I eat to stay alive. Okay. Next question. Right? Feels good. Sounds logical. Most people will pat you on the back and give you a gold star and say, yeah, right. That's it. So that's unconscious living versus what we're doing right now, contemplative practice. There's a completely different level of rigor required in a contemplative practice. We're not merely just thinking about, hmm, huh, that's interesting, and go on doing whatever else that we're doing. No. We're going through the layers. Why do you eat to stay alive? Let's think about that for a moment. And I put to you this thought with that response. You can eat as much food as you like, and you're still going to die. That's a fact, isn't it? You can eat as much food as you like, and you're still, this biology is going to fall away. That is a fact. So to whatever degree, what I eat has to do with the desire to stay alive, that now can be evaluated from a very different viewpoint. And again, the mind might say, well, yeah, I mean, I know at some point I'm going to die. It's like, well, yeah. So when you offer up this response, I eat to stay alive then maybe the mind will allow a reformulation. You'll say, well, I mean, I know I'm going to die, but I'd like to live as long as I can. And it's tantamount to the same response, actually. Sounds different, but in effect, it's the same. And again, I would ask you to look at the choices that you make to see if that is in fact true. You make this response, I eat, sensei, to stay alive, and yet you eat the type of food that you eat that is antithetical to living. Yes, it has calories. Yes, it has stuff in it, most of which you probably do not know and cannot even pronounce. But think about this. I eat to stay alive. Is that really true? Because you would have to know something about this biological organism that you probably presently do not know. 
you would have to know a number of things about it in order for that statement to actually be true, i.e. to stay alive. And as I said, given the eating habits of most people, if it isn't true, if it is in fact true that they are trying to eat or you are trying to eat to stay alive, wow, that needs to be rethought. <laughs> and this is about being authentic with oneself because whether you decide to change your eating habits or not are up to you. But what contemplative, real contemplative practice, the way that I instruct it and the way that I do it, will lead to a clarity so that at least you'll be authentic. It's like, you know what, actually, um, I actually don't eat to stay alive. And I do make poor eating choices. And I'm going to continue to do that. Okay. No harm, no foul. Right? No problem. But what is should not be acceptable is for you to act under the auspices of false pretenses, false values, false beliefs, and false in meaning that your actions actually don't support that at all or very little. And the great thing about food and nutrition is, you know, we can be very objective and say, okay, you say you eat to stay alive. How's your blood pressure? What's your cholesterol like? Are you overweight? Are you obese? Are you addicted to food? This is real talk. This is real complete, uh, contemplative practice. Some people might respond, I eat because of stress. I'm anxious, I have anxiety, or I'm depressed. And that's an honest answer. And the value of that response, though those reasons for eating aren't healthy reasons, it's still truth. And now I can do something about it, and that's the point. I can begin now to, at this level of the contemplation, start to see, yeah, why is it that I eat? I've offered up all of these you know, knee-jerk responses initially. Then I offered up some things that I think are matter of fact that everybody would agree with. I see that's kind of flimsy. I like it. I like to socialize. Uh, then I have the aha, you know, checkmate answer. So I think of, you know, we get hungry, we have to eat. Find out that that's not as strong of a position as believed and we get all the way down to to stay alive and then some authentic answers I'm addicted stress anxiety depressed and so what begins to happen here is that you continue this contemplation 
And people always want to know, when's the end? When does it end? Well, one, I'll say, forget about the end and focus more on truth. And when you reach the truth, that's when the contemplation is completed. Now, some of these contemplations, I need you to understand, the really profound ones, depending upon how attached you are to a sense of self and other concepts, can take a long time. I don't mean just like a, a few hours. It could be something that, quite frankly, you contemplate for weeks, months, years even, depending upon the size and scope of what it is that you're contemplating and your individual karmic makeup. They will both influence how your contemplation goes. And also, I would say as a third influence would be how often and accurately you have been able to engage in contemplative practice. And so here we have just scratched the surface of what real contemplative practice feels like, looks like. And I tell you, I've done this contemplation specifically with a number of people. And I can tell you that by the end, even if it's just an hour or two hours, 90 minutes, 50 minutes of me guiding the individual or the group as their kind of habitual answers surface, what people discover is amazing about themselves. One, not the least of which, is that they believe that they have been acting in accordance with certain thoughts and beliefs and find out quite to the contrary they have not or are not. Or secondarily, that the thoughts that they held are not the ones that they think presently in the contemplation are the most accurate or ones that they should be following. Concepts, ideas, clinging and grasping to a self that one claims to own or to be and finding really the falseness in that. So I'm going to conclude here. If you'd like to engage in contemplative practice with me in group or individually, please go to plantpoweredbuddhist.com, leave me a message, and we'll make arrangements to meet online and begin your contemplative practice on solid ground. I've been doing this for many years. Been something that has been a part of my spiritual journey for as long as I can remember and the benefits that it has 
brought to my life has been amazing. And so I want to share this practice, ancient, very old practice of real contemplative work because there is a methodology, there is a way, a manner in which to engage with this to get the full value out of it. And so contemplative practice is not for individuals who just want to scratch the surface, dip their toe in the river. No. It's for those individuals who are facing a situation, a thought, a problem, a challenge, an idea that they know they must transcend, that they must see through. And I can help you do that. Wherever you're listening to my podcast, if you're able to, I would appreciate if you left a nice comment, a nice review. If in fact you found this at all beneficial, it would be very helpful for me if you were to do that. Likewise, if you like what I'm doing here with the Plant Powered Buddhist podcast, please support the podcast through the support link that is attached to the description here. And for as little as a dollar a month, you can help support my efforts in trying to bring this level of consciousness, this level of understanding and depth to anyone and everyone who chooses to plug in. Until next time, peace and blessings.